Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. I'm pleased to have with us for our podcast today, Dr. Richard Wong. He is a clinical assistant professor at McGovern Medical School. He received his medical degree from Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, Chicago, Illinois in 2007. He completed his internship in internal medicine at Advocate Christ Medical Center in Oakland, Illinois, through the University of Illinois at Chicago College of Medicine in 2008. He then completed his residency at the Baylor College of Medicine, University of Texas Medical School at Houston, Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Alliance in June 2011, where he served as chief resident in his final year, followed by an administrative fellowship in brain injury rehabilitation at the Baylor College of Medicine. McGovern Medical School Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Alliance, which he completed in June 2012. Um, he joined the faculty of McGovern Medical School at UT Health in December 2014, and in 2015, he became the medical director of the Acute Inpatient Rehabilitation Unit at Tier Memorial Hermann at Memorial Hermann Greater Heights Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Huang. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dr. Kim. And we uh, Dr. Huang, we are pleased to have you as our ground round speaker, um, and your talk was fascinating, so I wanted to ask you some questions, kind of rehashing some of the things that you mentioned during your talk, um, but I want to start out just by asking you to tell us a little bit about your practice setting um, and how your practice setting has changed since you started treating patients with COVID-19. Sure. So um, I practice in an acute care hospital in a rehabilitation unit that is housed um, in one unit on one of the floors in that acute care hospital. Um, so we have 17 beds in non-pandemic times. And what's great about practicing in the acute care hospital is that we have a lot of consultants who've seen the patients uh, during acute care. So if they get transfer from acute care to the rehab unit. There was great continuity of care. And um, so typically, uh, you know, I would say maybe I had to get maybe upwards of 70% or so of our patients come from the acute care of that hospital. Um, so normally it's a, a mix of, you know, neurologic patients, so stroke, uh, some, uh, traumatic brain injury, but normally mild cases will get more of the severe traumatic brain injuries if they had them from outside or uh, brain tumors. And uh, we'll get some patients who have cervical myelopathy, uh, lumbar spinal stenosis. Uh, amputations are probably a big 
proportion of patients we see as well uh, in our hospital and a lot of just general deconditioning disability. Generally, we see a lot of older patients as well, uh, patients who have Medicare. Since the pandemic started, we basically became the center for seeing patients who uh, have not been discontinued off of transmission-based precautions. So they wanted to start this mainly because we didn't, we were seeing that there was a need for patients who were still on precautions to receive inpatient rehabilitation because they still had these medical needs uh, that we didn't feel were adequately, would be adequately treated at a skilled nursing facility setting. Um, and at the time when we were considering this, there were, they still, skilled nursing facilities were actually starting to take patients who were not yet off of these transmission-based precautions. Um, so we needed a way to sort of match that. They ended up choosing one facility in the Memorial Hermann system. And the reason, from what I've heard, they chose Memorial Hermann Greater Heights because we are an acute, well, we're, we're an acute care hospital. We're a rehab center within an acute care hospital. So it was easier to uh, have the expertise of internists, pulmonologists, and uh, infectious disease physicians 24-7, basically at our hospital. And the other reason is that we weren't a level one trauma center um, or we weren't a, a major trauma center in general. So I think for that reason, they, they wanted to preserve the, the trauma hospitals as being for the trauma still and then everyone else is uh, being potentially taking more COVID patients. So that's kind of how that uh, ended up being. Um, initially, we had five beds designated as COVID rehab beds. Um, eventually that shrunk down to three. And I think that was because of sort of the relative demand for acute care beds in our hospital during um, this peak of COVID in Houston over the summer uh, as compared to the need for, uh, for rehab beds for patients with COVID. So they put, so our, our normal rehab unit is on the fourth floor of our hospital. We didn't have any negative pressure isolation rooms available on that floor. So they put them onto the fifth floor, uh, which is an acute care floor. And um, even though some of the patients with COVID don't necessarily need to stay in uh, a negative pressure isolation room, it's really meant for patients who have airborne precautions, uh, but they did that anyways as a precaution just in case these patients needed to go on airborne precautions. Um, and then eventually they sort of retrofitted a couple of the rooms on the fourth floor. Um, and so that's kind of, uh, yeah. So basically at this point we have some COVID uh, patients on that, on the original uh, units. The other thing that they did too was that they basically made, we had I think 10 semi-private rooms. They made all of them private. So our census has decreased a little bit. So I think, you know, we had 17 beds. Now we have, 13. Um, and I think that's important just because uh, if you have a if you have a semi-private room and one of the roommates just instantly tests positive, um, it's not 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 a good situation for the roommate who who didn't test positive. So um, but I think overall in terms of sorry, just real quick, I was just gonna say uh, you know, I think in terms of what I'm seeing in general, it's it's pretty much gone back to the way it was pre-pandemic in terms of the distribution of patients with strokes and uh, debility and it's just occasionally we'll get 
uh, we'll, we'll have usually like a, a couple patients at a time who have COVID. I take that as uh, as good news for what's happening within the city of Houston. Right. Yes, I think so. And the numbers definitely. <laughs> are- um, what are, what were your what were some of your initial thoughts when you were initially approached to rehabilitate COVID nineteen patients? Yeah. So my thoughts were basically that I, you know, I I have parents who are in their eighties and I. I'm not their primary caregiver, but I do see them quite a bit. Um, so I was a little bit worried that I would pass it along to them because we know that age is a pretty big risk factor uh, in terms of getting severe COVID disease. Um, and of course, I think at the time when uh, they had approached me about potentially taking COVID rehab patients, I had not yet seen any COVID patients. So I didn't really know what to expect. All I knew about was what I'd been hearing in the media. You know, New York City had just gone through a, a huge peak of their sort of first wave, I guess, of, of COVID patients. So I was very freaked out about it. I um, immediately sought to uh, see what the feasibility was of using telemedicine as a means of seeing these patients. Um but I think I got over it the more I spoke with other acute care physicians in my hospital who had been seeing COVID patients regularly. So um, I felt a little bit more reassured. And from a rehabilitation standpoint, what are some of the striking differences, if any, um, between these severely deconditioned COVID-19 patients and those that you might typically see with general deconditioning or critical illness myopathy or polyneuropathy? Yeah, so I would say probably the most noticeable difference, and I think you can see this even in just general deconditioning as well, but it just feels more pronounced in patients with severe COVID disease who are recovering, um, is the fact that they are, you'll see a lot more variability in blood pressures and heart rates. So I feel like hypotension or orthostatic hypotension was particularly pronounced in some of these patients. Um, we would put them on midodrine and then we would add fluorinep on top of that and they would still, and we'd add abdominal binder head hose and they still would be orthostatic in some cases. Like you could control it a little better, but I felt like no matter what you were doing, um, you would still get these patients who had low blood pressures when they would get up. Um, but, uh, and then the other thing too is uh, kind of along with that would be heart rate variability. So a lot of these patients, you know, with minimal activity, their heart rates would be going up into the 130s and 140s. Um, so that was the big thing. And then also, uh, to some extent, some of these patients also had, um, a fair amount of hypoxia too with activity going, dipping into the low to mid 80s, um, even with some supplemental oxygen by nasal cannula. Um, so those are sort of the, the big things, um, but uh, yeah, overall, I think we were able to to rehab them pretty well, and we continue to be able to do so. Um, they, one of the things that just a little bit of a tangent here, but you know, Medicare uh, does require that patients participate in three hours of therapy per day in inpatient rehab, but because of these waivers done by CMS, uh, we were able to take patients who weren't quite able to tolerate that amount. Um, and I think that was good. Just I, I think both patients were still able to tolerate that amount of therapies or maybe 15 hours over a seven-day period. 
Um, but it was good that we were able to take those patients um, just in case because, you know, again, you get a lot of variability in vital signs. And I was going to ask you um, about some of the Medicare requirements for inpatient rehabilitation and um, if you could expand a little bit more about um, the changes that have been made, some of the waivers, and what um, physicians need to keep in mind when considering a referral to PM&R inpatient rehabilitation during these times. And do you feel like, I, I imagine that these waivers will go away at some point? Yeah. Okay. So I'll answer the first question you had first. So in terms of the CMS waivers that affect my practice, particularly at this point. So I already mentioned the fact that the uh, patients don't have to necessarily tolerate three hours of therapy per day, five days per week. I initially was reading the CMS guidelines uh, when we were setting up the rehab unit. I was reading the, the, the COVID rehab unit. I was sort of reviewing it over with um, some of the folks who were helping me set this up. And my interpretation of it was that it was really meant as a waiver more so uh, because if, for example, therapists were um, were stretched very thin and they couldn't see patients for three hours a day because of staffing issues, because, you know, maybe they were seeing co- acute care COVID patients or they themselves got COVID, then I mean, we could do the less than three hours a day. Um, but some of the other, uh, people who were helping set up the unit interpreted it, interpreted it as, uh, you know, you could get, you just didn't need to tolerate three hours a day period. Like you could get it, you could get under that amount for any reason. Um, so basically we ended up uh, accepting those patients. Um, the other waiver that was pertinent to us was that, you know, Medicare requires that you see patients face-to-face three days per week on the acute inpatient rehabilitation unit, um, at least three days per week. Uh, but nothing, nowhere in, in no documented state pre-pandemic that these could be done via telemedicine. So that is now something that you can do. So um, those telemedicine visits do count as the face-to-face visits. Um, in terms of your second question for consideration of who should be sent to acute inpatient rehab, really it should be pretty much um, Anyone who you think might, who's not quite at their functional baseline, who needs more medical oversight because they've got these variations in uh, blood pressure, heart rate, you know, vital signs as we already talked about, and you think need that 24-hour-per-day rehabilitation nursing and physician oversight. Um, so those are sort of the, the biggest considerations. But I would also say to uh, even just your standard rehab patients, who, you know, your bread and butter, stroke, brain injury, spinal cord injury, a lot, we we got a, a good proportion of patients who just incidentally tested positive in acute care, so, or even in rehab, in another rehab unit, and they got sent over to us. So, I mean, that's sort of a no-brainer, you know, they're sort of your, your classic inpatient rehab patients, and they just happen to have COVID. I mean, you're not, uh, you wouldn't want to send them off to a sniff. So, this is why it's kind of good to have an inpatient rehab unit that can take those patients. I will say after seeing um, some of the severely deconditioned um, post-ICU COVID patients, I mean, some of them um, are almost like a, you know, tetraplegic to the point where they 
can barely activate muscles um, from the neck down. They're so severely deconditioned. And also, they'll never see um, general deconditioning the same ever again, or even critical illness myopathy and polyneuropathy the same ever again. How has the how has experiencing or, or treating these patients changed your approach to formulating a rehab plan um, for even your non-COVID patients? Has it influenced the way that you practice medicine? I think that I've pretty much practiced it the same at this point. I, I would say the one thing, and I sort of already touched on this before, but I, I think um, the only way that it's really influenced me mainly is by infection control measures. So again, I'm, I'm a big proponent of having single rooms uh, or private rooms really just to prevent any spread of this because I just, um, I, I really feel strongly about uh, this being an airborne disease uh, more so than people give it credit for. So um, I, I personally do, for example, wear an N95 mask, um, even though we're probably technically not uh, mandated to, or, or, or it, it doesn't really fall within the CDC guidelines to wear one for each patient, but I definitely do. So um, again, to prevent myself from getting infected and from spreading it to other people. So that is probably the main way in which I have, it's, it's sort of changed practice for me. Um, but in terms of, yeah, formulating a rehab plan, I would say um, that is pretty much still stayed the same. I think, um, you know, we already mentioned before about the, the variability and vital signs. So I will typically at least uh, tell the therapist, um, we don't, you know, look at the vital signs for sure, but uh, don't use them too much in terms of uh, stopping therapies. I think patients can still do a fair amount um, as long as they're not you know, severely symptomatic. So that's sort of my guideline for, for one to hold therapies. Yeah, I think the any of the infection control measures and being more cognizant of that, even um, hopefully we're out of this pandemic soon, but once, even once we're out of the pandemic, I think the being more cognizant of infection control and the ability to pass um, infectious diseases from one patient to another, that's certainly something that would be a benefit to be more cognizant of going forward. And I know that I certainly have been, um, even with, you know, with my non-COVID patients, um, being much more careful than I have been before. Um, so thanks for mentioning that. Um, are there any, are there any experiences or stories of, um, these COVID-19 patients, um, that really hit home for you or, um, were very, you're really impressed upon you that something that you'll, any stories from patients that you feel like you'll remember for a long time that you may want to share with us? Yeah, so I think just, uh, I'll mention like two brief first stories, I guess. Uh, one of them was the very first COVID patient I had. Um, so she had severe pulmonary disease, was hospitalized for probably close to a month or so. And at that point in time, we weren't using the, uh, you know, the CDC had not yet updated its guidelines for um, the symptom-based strategy for discontinuation of transmission-based precautions. So we were going strictly test-based and, you know, she tested positive for forever and a day. But um, the reason why I think about her was, first of all, she was my first patient. So I was really just getting to learn COVID firsthand from her. Um, and then also, you know, she, I think just 
be, because of her demographics, she just reminded me a lot of, for example, uh, you know, uh, an older female relative because she was also of Taiwanese origin. And um, we sort of bonded in that way. But I, I remember feeling bad that I couldn't spend more time with her in the room because at the time I was still very uh, scared about <laughs> like the fact that she probably was very, very contagious. Um, even though, you know, going by the current guidelines from CDC, she would have been off precautions at that point. Um, but uh, I think everyone was sort of uh, treating her with extreme, extreme caution at that time. I, I think people still would. But um, again, the CDC guidelines would have discontinued that. Um, but I guess I just I think about her a lot because I I think about how isolating it must have been to be in that uh in that room um, or in a, in a negative pressure isolation room for weeks and weeks on end uh, with basically only seeing healthcare workers who uh, were dressed up in all their garb. So, um, so I, I, so she made sort of a big impression on me initially because of that. And then the other uh, patient I think about quite a bit was someone who we actually had from the, it was actually a transfer from um, tier in the medical or uh, someone with a severe, um, well, actually, it wasn't a severe traumatic brain injury. It was actually a, uh, a brain aneurysm, I believe. But anyways, she ended up coming to us because she instantly tested positive uh, for COVID when uh, she was going to an, appoint an outpatient appointment somewhere. Um, so the thought was that maybe she caught it in the ambulance or um, somewhere outside of Tier in the Med Center. Uh, but I think about her a lot because she was already at that point uh, using a power wheelchair um, and, you know, being in this kind of cramped room where you can't get out of the room uh, and using a power wheelchair is almost impossible. Like her therapies were extremely limited. Um, and I feel like because she had been at Tier in the Med Center for so long already, she had a great routine there. Um, and then suddenly here we are taking her out of that. And now, by the way, you can't leave your room at all. Um, I just, I felt like she became maybe a little bit more depressed in that whole process. And then on top of the fact that brain injury patients are already at high risk for depression, it just was not a good combination. Um, so, uh, I guess the combination of these two events just reinforced to me the fact of, um, it being very tough to, uh, be a patient under these circumstances where you can't get out of your room at all. So. Thank you so much for sharing those stories. Um, you're certainly a hero, at least within our department, for taking these COVID-19 patients. Um, I actually remember that patient, um, that second patient that you mentioned that was transferred from Tier that, that ended up testing positive. Um, so we thank you for taking these patients and the work that you're doing with them. And I'm sure that they, to a certain extent, they see you as a hero as well. Um, and I'm glad that you're healthy. Thank you so much for the time that you spent with us today and sharing your experiences and your stories. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. 
One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.